0: Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, a Rhodesian Farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. The following chapter I'm about to read might be the most tricky of all my chapters. I think you'll understand why later. Some people even went as far as to ask me not to include it in my podcasts. But I think they missed the point. You see, it's not just about childhood sexuality. It's about something far more insidious, I think. Child abuse, even. Don't get me wrong, I was a willing, if not misguided, partner in all of this. But that didn't make it any easier. And so, if this episode helps just one teenager understand that they're not alone, well then, perhaps I've succeeded. The chapter's called The Seychelles and the Submariner, It was one evening during the height of the Civil War. We were driving like the clappers back to the farm because it was late and there was a curfew. My beloved uncle David Ward had been killed in an ambush a year earlier on this very stretch of road. But in the usual indomitable Rhodesian way, we always felt that life must go on, I suppose. Besides... We had a Mercedes S-Class and, God willing, the car that the adverts claimed was the best or nothing would pull us through. That night, my friend James Hughes was in the car with us. James was my best friend and he was also one of the straightest guys in the world. My dad was driving and my mum was in the passenger seat relaxing. We were cruising well over 90 miles an hour along the curving roads near Mzoe Dam. I turned to James and pulled out a small glass vial. It was a free sample of the latest fragrance by Fabergé called Bade. Gosh, I'd had a real crush on Margot Hemingway, the model who had been at the forefront of the campaign, and I'd even bought the single from her Babe advert. You could get any perfume you wanted in Rhodesia. Something cosmetic companies ignored was the UN sanctions on Rhodesia. What do you think of this, I asked James, cracking open the vial and passing it to him to smell. The heady scent of... Ambergris and roasted citrus filled the cabin. James had been with me earlier that day when we had been seduced by the QV pharmacy girl into taking a sample home with us. Without warning, my father slammed on the brakes, the car screeching across the tarmac, wheels burning rubber, all 3,373 pounds of steel grinding under his control. What the hell was happening? Both James and I were thrown forwards and then back against the seat. My mother let out a short scream. Was it an ambush? God, no, not here, not on this stretch of road. The terror of the moment gripped us. Within seconds, the car had come to a silent, hissing stop. Absolute silence darkness no one dared move and then out of the gloom my father reached across the back of the seat grabbed the perfume and hurled it out the window the stunned silence seemed to last for a decade what the bloody hell's wrong with you boomed his voice why don't you smell like a man why did you smell like life boy more stunned silence life boy was the Red Army Issue Soap from the Second World War, for God's sake. I shrank back into my seat. I knew what was about to happen. And another thing! What the fuck did happen that night in the Seychelles? Well, a good question, I thought. What the fuck did happen that night in the Seychelles? I wonder how my life would have changed had I told him the truth that night, in the darkness of the car, in the middle of the bush, with my best friend sitting next to me. Oh, John Cutton, Mum, drive on, for Christ's sake, it's dangerous here. The moment was lost, and into the darkness we drove, silently. Silently. The question disappearing into the night like a firefly, extinguishing its light. My father now had to take his doubts to his grave, eating at him like cancer. For years, Woody must have been brooding over this question. One could imagine it chewing up his brain like some kind of parasite, and not once... Did he have the guts or the gall to even ask me if I was all right, if I was damaged goods? If I was suicide from the incident two years earlier on those paradise islands? (laughs) Do you know, it made me laugh. Your own father cannot even speak to you. His rigid, prissy, Edwardian attitude forced him into looking the other way. His silence spoke volumes. His anger and bitterness said it all. I knew that he knew. Deep down, I knew. Not only did I know that he knew, but I also knew instinctively he knew that I actually enjoyed it, whatever it was. The genie was out the bottle. It absolutely killed me, and no doubt it killed him too. My father wasn't stupid. He didn't suffer fools gladly. And he knew that I had been up to something. He also knew that, well, maybe I was a victim, but maybe I wasn't. So, what did happen that night? Two years earlier, May 1978, The call came through shortly after lunch when all the kids were settling down to our obligatory half-hour siesta. Wood! Phone call! I leapt up and dashed across the dorm to the phone in the hall. No one ever called. It must be important. Hi, Pups. It's Mum. Hi, Mum. Everything okay? Why does she call me Pups? Oh, yes, super. I'm calling to tell you that we want to take you out of school early this term. We're going to the Seychelles. The Seychelles, I screeched. Nothing in my whole world sounded more exotic than the Seychelles. My mind reeled as I tried to place it on the map. We're going with the Trembling Johnsons. It was my dad's nickname for the Tremlett Johnsons. Sue Trembling Johnson was a terribly sophisticated and glamorous lady of a certain age. I didn't know her particularly well, as it did surprise me that we were going on holidays with them and not our usual rabble. But it also excited me, no end, that we were to travel with such a classy couple. And Sue spoke fluent French, surely a bonus in those Creole isles. That afternoon, I pored over maps of the Seychelles in the school library, exotic, fascinating names such as Mahé, Ladigue, Pralin, and Silhouette Island. The archipelago is situated off the coast of Africa on the equator. Everything would be a first for me, crossing the equator, flying in a jumbo, coca de meres, cocktails, and who knows what else. What more could a 15-year-old want? Well, be careful what you wish for. I was soon to find out. The islands were everything, if not more, than I had dreamed of. Almost every description of the Seychelles appears to be a bit over the top. It's only the easily impressed who get to visit and write about the Seychelles, some brochure said. Well, maybe that's me. Easy and impressed. So here with the public relations announcement. Isolated, mountainous and covered with a thick blanket of coconut palms, towering granite boulders, thrust up from the earth's core and surrounded by the most gloriously aquamarine coral sea. Jacques Cousteau, part of whose documentary, The Silent World, were shot in the Seychelles, said he had never been anywhere else with such clarity of water or diversity of marine life. And that is the end of the public relations announcement. The Reef Hotel in Mahé was the, well, it was the epitome of glamour, or so I thought. This was the 1970s, after all, women still dressed in gowns at dinner. Men in slacks and smart sandals, hair slicked back with brill cream, smelling of coconut oil and glowing with health. The ocean crashing down on the reef only a few hundred yards from the dining room. Hot, lazy days spent exploring the islands, driving around the hairpin bends in a mini moke, diving off deserted beaches, drinking warm, sticky rosé and picking the sweet flesh from grilled lobsters. It was all so idyllic. That was until the submarine came into port. HMAS Orion was an Oberon-class sub belonging to the Royal Australian Navy, built in the 1960s in Scotland but only recently commissioned by the RAN. It was the height of Australian sea power in the day. With a crew of 56, she was a tight squeeze and certainly caused a stir when she pulled into port in Victoria, Mahe. The sub had been at sea for six weeks out of Singapore, and the sailors were, well, to say the least, feisty, tough, rowdy, and fun. More importantly, they were staying at the Reef Hotel. My little hormones started bouncing. All my Sundays had come at once. At first it looked like the hotel was having a Freddie Mercury convention. Back then the handlebar moustache was de rigueur for any man in the army or navy. This was, without a doubt, the precursor to the clone look. That was to take over the gay Castro neighborhood in San Francisco a few years later and made so popular by Zanzibar's most wicked export, Queen Frontman Freddie Mercury. But here in the Seychelles were men, real men, no clones, real moustaches, real sailors, real uniforms. I was 15, well... I was fifteen and two-thirds, to be precise, and was quite taken by their charm and rough-and-ready manner. Over the next few days, friendships blossomed. Here I was on holiday, drinking beer with these tough Aussie men, and rather proud that they were falling over themselves to buy my glamorous platinum-blonde mum a drink. I really think even my dad was a little proud and rather enjoyed having some drinking companions. For much of the day I would lie on the Chez lounge by the pool, dreading the moment when I was expected to stand up. I cursed myself for ever wearing budgie smugglers, as the Aussies called speedos. Our friendship with the crew finally paid off when one day the officers invited us onto the submarine to have a look around. My lasting memory of this was the tight fit between bunk beds. Once lying on a bunk, the bed above you was so close that you were unable to turn over. Your nose almost touched the metal bed above. It's a very tight fit, I remarked to no one in particular. They all laughed. You'll be surprised how many people you can fit onto those bunks, mate, one sailor commented, winking at me. My knees nearly buckled. Hello, sailor. Over the next few days, we gradually got to know these men well. Good buggers, my dad said, not for the first time. My age and my naivety are quite apparent when I read back over my diaries from that period. They're real beauts, really fantastic chaps. One wouldn't think that they would go out of their way for us, but they do. We all had a ball of a time and got drunk. Well, it gets a bit more interesting. In the evening, all the sailors tried to get me pissed. They were amazed at how much I could take. Really? And what were my parents doing when their 15-year-old was getting quietly slaughtered with a bunch of old salts? Well, that was all about to change dramatically. We were finishing dinner. The bar, only a few yards from our table, was heaving as usual with sexy women and sailors. My mother was looking particularly gorgeous in a floor-length cream gown shot with silver and complemented with matching killer silver heels. I could not have been more proud of her, and as she walked across the floor, every head turned. But unbeknown to me, one head turned for me. John was relaxed and smoking his cheroot, gazing out at the phosphorescence in the ocean. ''Do you mind if I go to the bar and have a beer with the lads?'' I asked. ''Lads?'' I thought. God, ''How dare I calling them lads?'' ''Trying to be big stuff was not becoming.'' That said, age limit wasn't a barrier here, and besides, I was extremely precocious. ''I don't know, Pete,'' said my dad. ''Oh, do let him, Chipton Sue.'' Then, leaning forward to me, she whispered, in a conspiratorial manner, ''Let me give you some advice, darling. In this life, we only have one chance. You must always make an impression.'' She paused for effect, and then, hand on my knee, continued, ''It doesn't matter whether it's a good impression or a bad impression. Just damn well leave an impression.'' My dad chuckled. Okay, mate, off you go. My mother absent mindedly nodded consent. Sidling up to the bar I ordered a sabrew, the local lager. I leaned back against the bar terribly grown up and took a couple of swigs of ice cold beer. When one of the sailors I didn't know came up to me and introduced himself as Arnie. Arnie had the ubiquitous moustache and regulation crew cut. He was tough, rough, and had a certain amount of louche charm. Look, mate, do you want to come back to my chalet for a beer, he asked. The Aussie drawled, stretching out the word beer. How strange, I thought. I already have a beer. Why on earth? Then the penny dropped. Fucking hell. This dude wanted to fuck me. This macho man, this 29-year-old sailor wants to shag me, a 15-year-old. Nothing in my short, sweet life had prepared me for a proposal such as this. We do stupid things as children, and I was just a kid. But to be fair, I was driven, pumped with complex hormones that had never been put into active duty. And I was in paradise. And there and then, without as much as a backward glance at my stunned parents, sitting just a few feet away, I stood up and followed the sailor out of the bar, across the gardens, past the tennis court, where he waved knowingly to some other sailors, and down to his chalet. My initiation into the real world was about to begin. As soon as we entered the chalet, Arnie locked the door. Feeling trapped and thinking on my feet, I unlocked it. Arnie relocked it. I shrugged. Then Arnie turned the lights off. I turned them on. He turned them off. This was becoming a bit scary and predictable, I thought. Oh well, my escape route was now gone. I waited for my eyes to adjust. Thank God, there was a full moon. Did the chalet even belong to Arnie? He wouldn't even touch the bed. It was strange. I watched quietly as he lay a reed sunbathing mat on the floor and gestured for me to lie down. He then proceeded to do absolutely everything one can ever imagine to me. Arnie threw the book at me. The sensuous man, the sensuous woman, the A to Z of sex, Seriously, I hadn't even been French-kissed before. This was not a learning curve. This was a rocket shooting through the ceiling. Lying there on that uncomfortable reed mat, covered in ombre solaire suntan oil and gritty sand, I thought, blimey, how in the hell am I going to tell my mates about this one? The ordeal did finally come to an end. I call it an ordeal with a handful of salt. It was educational, interesting, uncomfortable, terrifically enlightening, somewhat technical and frighteningly exciting. After about three hours, there was a hairy, heavy, sweaty man falling asleep on top of me. R.A.N. Arnold was spent, and it was time for me to leave. To be bestowed the sudden adult knowledge was confusing at the time all I could think about was sex but postcoitus the world began to close in around me slowly like a heavy weight secrecy bound tightly together with abject terror knowing that my parents would be waiting for me i walked slowly back across the now dark hotel grounds to my room that adjoined my parents. In my chest, my heart pounded. The light was still on. And they were absolutely fucking furious. Where the bloody hell have you been, shouted my father. You've made us sick with worry, you selfish little shit. Well, I had my doubts as to whether his worry concerned my safety or his pride. But this was no time to pick an argument with the merits or disadvantages of parenthood. An angry John Wood was a beast not to be tampered with. I was drinking with the sailors, I told you that, I replied rather sheepishly. Then, as if to make it easier, I added in the names of two officers whom my parents had taken a shine to. We went down to the tennis courts with Robbie MacDonald and Bob Ross. And we were all having beers. It was just good fun. My father grunted. My mother shook her head. For three damn hours sounds bloody suspicious to me. And that, my dear reader, was that. The episode was over. Never mentioned again until that notorious night on the road home. Truthfully, this initiation into sex had an enormous effect on me. The age difference was one factor. What he did was naturally, or unnaturally, depending on who you are, another factor. Yet the hardest part of all was the beginning of a decade or more of lies and bending the truth to friends, family and loved ones. When my buddies spoke of a a grope with a girl, I knew far better. I could still smell his breath slightly tangy from beer as his tongue found its way down my back and beyond when my friend spoke of a kiss with a girl i knew of a kiss that was hard eager strong probing and masculine and deep shocking and exciting the taste of salt from a sweat and suntan oil Not just a wet shy kiss, but something from a person who knew exactly what they were doing and what they wanted. When a friend shyly spoke of feeling up a girl, I knew only of strong fingers, probing, hardened by work on a ship, rough military flesh. I also felt guilt, awesome inexorable guilt and waves of stupidity and anger. I displayed an immaturity by not thinking ahead that hot night. I felt trapped, and I needed a scapegoat. Betrayal is easy, too easy. It's as old as mankind. R.A.N. Arnold was going down with me, of that I was sure. It hurt me. I was not the kind of person brought up to betray another man. A part of me felt a kind of love for Arnie, But I was trapped. The morning after the event, followed by a breakfast eaten in silence, I decided to tell Robbie MacDonald and Bob Ross. Everyone's capable of betrayal. But beware the children. My hormones are stronger than my common sense. I was still terribly muddled, yet never once did I think I was being wronged by Arnie. It was the natural order of things. I knew that what had occurred was the right thing, but I was teetering on a ledge and I was an extremely dangerous animal. Leaving a note in the pigeonhole of the two officers, I told them I'd been tricked, not forced, not raped, but in my naivety, lured into the room by Arnold. The HMAS Orion set sail that day. A note left at reception, written by Robbie, simply said, Be strong. Good luck. The desire to be loved was far stronger than the desire to be secretive. But there was a vacuum. There was nothing to lean on, no one to talk to. There was a void. I had to tell someone. I needed to tell someone. I tried to tell my mother but lost confidence. I wish I had told Madeleine, my cousin. She would have understood. She was always pushing gender-bending books, films or music at me like Al Pacino's Cruising or David Bowie's Cross-Dressing Antics. But a story like this would cause such upheaval and horror at boarding school it simply did not bear thinking about. The first of many stories emerged from my mouth keep it real, don't ever get caught out, do not betray yourself. And so Arnie became Annie, yes, she was 28 or 29, yes, yes, she was married, going through a divorce, by the way, yes, she did everything to me, and sorry, I won't list them here, although I did tell them about the anal part, that must have set a few alarm bells clanging. And so it came to pass that Pete Wood became the first of his group of friends to get laid. And indeed, it would be many years before some of those chaps ever did some of the positions that Arnie, sorry, 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 Annie, and I performed on that moonlit night in Mahe. I managed to stay in touch with Arnie in a way, in a rather, well, pathetic way. He became my first real boyfriend. It was doomed. We communicated through letters, kind, sweet messages mostly, with little or no real depth. In the beginning, when Arnie wrote to me, I was excited by these illicit letters, but I expect, as is so common with youth, I was quickly losing interest in the man. My eyes were wandering. Or else I was lying to myself and lying to my diary. Got a letter from Arnie, the Australian queer. Fuck it. I think I was in denial. He sent me a postcard of Sydney Harbour Bridge and some posters of Olivia Newton-John and Greece, which, according to my diary, is definitely the best film I've ever seen. And this is the truth. I wish I could see it four times. It's the only film that I've ever actually flipped over. Jesus, by God, I could scream about it. Rather strange, but so appropriate in so many ways. God bless Olivia and John. Oh, and Arnie as well, I suppose. And still to this day, when I smell Ombre solaire, I feel dizzy and a little nauseous. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com if you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for mud between your toes feel free to write to me goodbye